Welcome to the Outdoor Feast by Modern Carnivore. If you're new to hunting, fishing, or foraging, we welcome you to the conversation. Get ready for stories and insights that start in the Northeast, but range to the South, Far West, and wide open spaces in between. Now, here's your host, Todd Waldron. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Outdoor Feast podcast. This is Todd. It's great to be here this week. Uh, Thanks for listening in. Hope you're all well. I am joined by my good friend, Mark Norquist, this week. Mark, how are you? Doing well, Todd. So we are here in March, and it sounds like ice fishing season is starting to wind down a little bit out in Minnesota. How's things been over the last few weeks? Yeah, actually, Sunday was the last day of the uh, of the season officially, and uh, all of the permanent houses needed to be off. And so, yeah, we closed it out here. Uh, John Kachorik, who was working with me on the Hardwater Hunter series this winter, uh, we got out uh, with him and his family, Jamie Carlson and his son, myself and and my daughter. And uh, we got on the ice one last time, cut some holes, and it was just a beautiful day. We were, we were inside the, the, the pop-up shelters, and it was so hot, you had to strip down to a t-shirt it was because of the solar that was just uh, heating up the shack so much. So it was, it was warm, and it was sunny and beautiful. So I noticed that on the social post too, the t-shirts, and I figured it must have been the shack. So that is that is so cool. I, I made it out fishing this weekend too, and I've not had time to fish that much, but we, my father and I went out on Sunday morning for a couple of hours on a local lake, and we just got into this run with lake trout where we had 14, 15 flags in a matter of two or three hours and picked oh. up, yeah, we picked up like four kept two for table fare, put two back. And it was just an amazing morning. It was just, just right. Just perfect. And uh, so it was a really good experience. The the shacks here have to be off the ice March 15th. We have about two, maybe three weeks of fishing left and then the weather's going to turn and then it'll be pretty dicey. So things are yeah. winding down. Actually in Northern Minnesota, you can still have, have ice houses out and, and uh, they, they fish till the end of this month. Uh, I believe till the end, very end of the month, uh, up in like Lake of the Woods on the Canadian border, and uh, I'd love I'd love to head up there for w- one more trip, but uh, I don't think uh, I don't think it'll happen as we head towards turkey season here. If if you can make it, that sounds great. Keep me posted. You know, this one last thing on ice fishing. I was looking in the archives, looking through old family pictures, and my father. I found a picture. He was actually featured in the local newspaper for this. He caught this beautiful lake trout in the early 1980s, like 1983, 84 on the ice. It was April 10th. <laughs> so there was still ice. It was April 10th and he was still fishing. So uh, that was a cool article. Uh, well, but- yeah, I'm, I'm, March can be pretty darn nice, like of, of just sitting out on a bucket and catching perch. A lot, a lot of people go after some of those uh, late ice perch, which I'm, I'm hoping to maybe get get one trip in still uh or actually this weekend jamie carlson's gonna head up and go after tulabi on uh on on a lake in north central minnesota so that that late season stuff that's fun when you could be just sitting out there on a warm sunny day just sunning yourself and catching some fish yeah it is so uh look forward to keeping in touch on all of that and so this week on the podcast what's funny is it's almost one calendar year since we recorded this particular podcast with 
Matt Corcoran and Gary Mares and Tom Hammond. We were at the World Fishing Expo the last weekend of February, first weekend of March in 2020. So it was like a week before COVID restrictions hit. And there were probably 15 to 20,000 people that came through the expo. We were working a booth. And so I was able to catch up with Matt and Gary and Tom. We had this incredible conversation about how to get started hunting around New York City and Long Island. So Gary and Matt are Long Island. They've, they've lived there their whole lives. And they just have these incredible stories. Matt's talking about his experience as a teenager working on a lobster boat for what would be his eventual father-in-law and just talking about going out there and lobstering. And it's a cool story. And, and Gary is somebody who grew up fishing and then got busy with life and work and college and got married. And then he reactivated with fishing as an adult 15 years later, started blogging about it. And now he's even into hunting. So he, he likes to refer to himself as fashionably late hunter. He, he's a really <laughs> cool guy. He's really active with conservation. Just got on the, the 2% committee for him. So big shout out for Gary. Um, so, yeah, it was a good conversation. It was uh, February 29th, actually, 2020. And that's what we're bringing this week. And uh, there's kind of an interesting twist to that, you know, like with the reactivation part for Gary, it's a cool story because, you know, we talk so much about bringing people in and recruitment, but really cool to hear about the reactivation part, getting people back outdoors. Yeah, no, I think there, I think everybody obviously has their own path. Life gets busy at times and people through a number of different circumstances get away from it, but it's always fun to hear people who have come back to it. And that's why I'm I'm looking forward to this this conversation and hearing it, and uh, that's that's what it's about is is hearing everybody's individual story and how they come to to fishing either initially or or come back to it. So had he he started fishing again, but he hadn't hunted when he was young. So this he started hunting as an adult for the first time, or yeah, that's right. So he tells his story about hunting for the first time and having the conversation with his wife about it and just walking through that whole process in terms of what it meant for his family and commitments and time and everything like that. So it's a really cool conversation. And, you know, I give him a lot of credit for, you know, he had a mentor that kind of helped him initially, but then he just started going out and really trying to just figure it out himself. And, you know, he's worked through it. Uh, I think maybe this might be his second year it's it's really inspiring to hear his story. And then, you know, what the other thing I really love is that Tom and Matt, who have both hunted their whole life, you know, I, they both reiterate just how much intentionality there is around people who live around New York City who choose to hunt because there's just a lot of extra steps and mechanics and barriers for people to get started. So the people that are really trying to embrace it and doing it they're really earning it. It's it's a cool conversation. It's supportive. I hope people like it. Well, and that's that's the thing too. Like we've talked about, you know, it's probably when you guys had this conversation, maybe I'm trying to think, was that six months after we had that event in Brooklyn where where we came up with this idea for the Outdoor Feast podcast and we were having conversations with all these people about what are the barriers to living in urban centers and wanting to get out hunting and fishing? And uh, I think that's something we need to just to continue to talk about as we look at everybody moving to urban centers more more often. How do we overcome some of those challenges to to getting people outside? 
Yeah, most definitely. Um, so I think it aligns perfectly with that event that we did in Brooklyn. It aligns with the fact that access for hunting, you know, starts with the foundation of having access to places to hunt, but it also includes access for community and access to resources and hunter ed and support. So I think people will really like this this particular podcast. So let's get into it. And folks, if you haven't listened to Mark's recent podcast with Ali Jutine, I think it's episode 22. Uh, that was a great conversation. So go over to modcarn.com and pick that one up. And thanks for supporting us. And uh, here it goes. Welcome to the Outdoor Feast. This is Todd. Thanks for joining us this week. We are in the Crown Plaza Hotel in Suffern, New York, within 40 miles of New York City. Sounds pretty fancy. It's just a normal motel, but it's a nice dig, right? Mm. Pretty good. We are with Tom Hammond. Hello. Hello, Tom. Matt Corcoran. Hey. Gary Maris. How's it going? And the reason we are here is because we are staffing the booth with our friend Crystal Whiteman, who is not here tonight. She went home, but we are staffing the booth at the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers booth at the World Fishing Expo at Suffern. So we're here this weekend. And if there's one thing like I notice is that there's a lot of energy, a lot of people. I mean, thousands of people have come through the show, probably 10,000 people maybe over the weekend. A lot of excitement and buzz around the outdoors within close proximity to New York, Long Island, Hudson Valley. For folks outside the area, they might not know that, right? Yeah. So that's what we're talking about tonight. So what we're going to do is we're just going to share some stories about growing up and fishing on Long Island and your experiences with Matt and Gary, Tom's experience with moving down to New York City from the North Country, and like what your perception of access to hunting and fishing opportunities have been. So pretty cool stuff. And this is a second take because we started talking for about 20 minutes and I forgot to hit the record button. Well, you're being nice. I mean, you've accidentally destroyed. (laughs) I'm very glad it's working We're bringing you behind the scenes of the Outdoor Feast podcast. But yeah, so let's start with Matt. Like, Matt, how were you introduced to the outdoors? You know, just lay it on as far as like how you got started, what your experience has been. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I started working, I started working on a lobster boat with a friend of mine, his father, and started doing that when I was 14. And through working on that lobster boat, my, it's a funny story, my now father-in-law started taking me up to the Adirondacks. They had a camp up there and they started, you know, teaching me how to shoot and, you know, slowly teaching me how to hunt, you know, and progressed working with them, going to school, working on the back of the boat. And one thing led to another. I married my wife and working on a lobster boat pretty much became my livelihood till I was 25 when the lobsters ran out. And that allowed, working on a lobster boat allowed me a lifestyle of work in the summer, hunt in the fall, trap in the winter repeat the process springtime we get the pots up and get everything going again there's um, there's so much to talk about that yeah. so so many questions that yeah, are yeah. like absolutely amazing that working on a lobster boat off of long island off of mount sinai is just an amazing story and then you know what it's like being a 14 year old so we're gonna get back to that sure. okay gary i want to switch over to you really quick tell us a little bit about your background you know what your experiences were growing up with fishing and like how you got started with germanic Germanic angler. Okay. Uh, Lay it all out for us. Yeah. So I came from an outdoors family. My grandfather was a scoutmaster. Pretty much when he came back from World War II, 
So my father grew up in an outdoors family. He, he didn't really start fishing until he was about 11, but it's something he wanted to make sure that I got started in when I was pretty young. So he started taking me when I was about three years old. And I've pretty much been fishing ever since. I did get to a point like where once I hit college, there was a time where I kind of moved indoors a little bit. So it was about 15 years where I only maybe went fishing maybe five or six days a year. And one day somebody asked me if I wanted to write on their website. And I was like, sure, you know, let me speak to my wife and see if I could start fishing a little bit more. She said, okay. I wound up not really writing for his website. He had a very specific brand that he was looking for. But I branched off and did my own thing with Germanic Angler, and I've been doing that for about four years now. I mean, I've had a lot more time outdoors, so it's been pretty good. Yeah, very cool. That's like the fringe benefit of that. Yeah. It's a lot of work doing that stuff. It's great stuff. And so you're a relatively new hunter. Yeah, uh, Talk I am about a that. fashionably late hunter. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah how, so how did that journey go for you, Gary? So as much as it was an outdoor family, there was no hunting heritage in my family. Uh, I got exposed to it when I was 10 or 11 years old. There's someone that became a huge influence in my life. His name was Ron. We met him. Uh, my family had a trailer in the Poconos. Uh, we met Ron, and he was a consummate hunter. And we got exposed to a lot of wild game. I ate quite a bit of venison growing up. And, you know, I, I really loved it, and I wanted to have a connection with that. And when I was about 18, I was going to take the hunter safety course, but I wound up having to do something with my grandfather, take him to some kind of doctor's appointment or something. Never got around to signing up for another course. And like I said, I went back into the outdoors four years ago. So that was like a 15-year layoff, roughly. And I was fishing again for about a year. And I looked at my wife and said that I was interested in hunting. And we kind of had a conversation where the time frame was that I was going to start hunting when my son, who was two years old now, that he was going to be a little bit more self-sufficient. So the hope was to be in the woods by the time I was 39, the fall that I was 39 years old. And conversations started happening slowly. I didn't push it. And she's like, well, maybe you could start hunting, you know, maybe like a year earlier. And then if you remember the government shutdown we had a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. somebody had given me venison and I had the dream of being a house husband for about 35 days. So I did a lot of <laughs> honeydew list stuff, a lot of cleaning and a lot of cooking. And I started in with the venison diplomacy. And the last meal that I served her was the venison backstrap, the balsamic reduction that's in the meat eater cookbook. And she, once she finished the meal, she looked at me and said, you can start hunting this year. So, <laughs> yeah. so I jumped ahead like three years in the timeline. It was pretty nice. So it was the food aspect of it. She really liked the food aspect of it. Yeah, I had to let yeah. her know that I probably wasn't going to get anything, and I'm glad I let her know up front because, yes. you know. What was her initial impression like when you told her? So this is a great story because what I love about this is we talk about R3, like recruitment, reactivation, retention, and all that, right? We're always talking about recruitment and the new hunter stuff. But you've got reactivation with your fishing. You you took a kind of a hiatus for yeah. a long time. And so all of a sudden, your lifestyle kind of points you back in that direction and everything. What was your wife's perception when you first told her, like, I want to start hunting? It's been 15 years mm-hmm. since you really even fished. Yep. So what was that like? So it was, you know, it was definitely something that I had to go lightly with. So this April, we will have been together for 19 years, married for seven of them, fishing and hunting was not a part of the deal when we started dating. She knew I liked it. Like I said, I went maybe five or six days a year. And then there was the conversation about getting back out there and basically having this be the hobby, the thing that I wanted to do. You know, I wasn't really interested in going out with the guys. I wasn't as interested in taking a Saturday for myself to watch all the college football games. So it was really, there was a little bit of a give and take. She was okay with it. Basically, as long as housework was done and I wasn't leaving anything aside that I needed to take care of at home, she didn't have an issue with it. 
when the hunting conversation came up, you know, that was a little bit because then it was like, there's going to be a little bit more time outdoors. Really one of the main sells was any article that I write that I get paid for will go into the joint account. So that has made the transition a lot easier. So I've been able to put a couple paychecks in the account. So that's been pretty good. Very cool. That's great. And you're a member of POMA, right? The Professional yep, yep. Outdoor Media Association. That's awesome. We're going to get back to that. I want to jump back to Matt and then we're going to get Tom in on this. I, there's two things I want to ask Matt is one, I want you to walk us through what it's like being on a lobster boat off of Long Island on a day-to-day level. Like there are very few people in this world that can say that at age 14, they were working a lobster boat yeah. out of Mount Sinai. I'm fascinated by that whole thing, by the way. <laughs> Talk a little bit about just the boat, endless stories and the personalities of the people you were with, sure. your father-in-law. And then we can segue to what it's like hunting on Long Island. The cool thing about you is you're hunting on Long Island, but yeah. you're also going up to the Adirondacks, yeah. Yeah. which I think is a really cool juxtaposition yeah. of like two diff- way different worlds. So talk about your life as lobstering yeah. and then about what it's like to be hunting and All then right. we'll jump. Lobstering. It was 3.30 to 4.30 in the morning, loading, loading bait on the boat. You know, rain, sleet, snow, it didn't matter. We got the bait on the boat, we got out, and asses and elbows, turn and burn, get 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 the get the lobsters out of the pots and get the pots back in the water fishing. It was it was how fast you could go. Were you catching your own bait or were no, you like no yeah, we, we, just... we we bought our own bait, fifty five so, gallon drums of salted herring. Yeah, salted herring. Yep. And then you told the stories earlier at the expo you were telling about the glory days of lobstering oh, with man. your father-in-law. Yeah, my father-in-law, he owned four boats. He started out with a wooden boat by himself, working by himself. No cabin on it. He used to tell me he'd be spitting salt water all day because he'd be getting hit in the face with waves all day. And he built it up and the lobsters were there. And he, he wound up having four boats in the heyday, catching, you know, two, 2,500 pounds of lobsters in a day. He'd fill two, two tractor trailer loads out of the tank it was wild to watch and be a part of like just the amount of lobsters that came out of there it was unbelievable yeah which came first so he's your father-in-law now right he's my father-in-law were you interested in your wife at the time or like did you just like it's (laughs) that's what i'm (laughs) this is a whole interesting story i haven't even told you guys yeah Um, yeah so my brother-in-law eric good friend through high school i got on the boat through another friend of ours but I hooked up with Eric, and Eric took a liking to me, and I took a liking to him. And him and my now father-in-law, they would take me up to the Adirondacks and, and teach me how to shoot and stuff. And in, you know, down times when we weren't lobstering as, as heavy, September mostly. So I was always interested in his sister, and I always bust on him a little bit. Hey, man, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to marry your sister someday, and I'd mess with them. Because I always wanted to, you know, be a lobster man. It was romantic. I really loved it. It was an awesome job. And so I'd always mess with him. A couple of days, a couple of weeks after Eric's 21st birthday, he stepped into the line on the lobster boat and went out the back. And that was Eric. He died on the lobster boat. Are you serious? Yeah. Holy yeah, smokes. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that was, that was rough, you know, like losing like your best friend. That was tough, you know, got it together. And I spent a lot of time with the family, you know, I felt like I needed to be there. And, you know, one thing led to another and, and I started hanging out with my now wife, Jenny, and, you know, kind of just filled that position, you know, I was there, you know, and so that brought me and my father-in-law pretty close together. Cause now I, you know, kind of stepped into my brother, my brother-in-law's shoes and helped out with the business and took a bigger role and 
I wound up getting married and, you know, through that I got a license and started running, running the boat for my father-in-law. And we spent a lot of time together hunting, fishing, lobstering, all of it. You know, he helped me with endeavors of trying to further my commercial fishing career. And we spent a lot of time upstate hunting and that was how I came up. That's how I got to where I am right now, pretty much. I didn't mean oh. to hit you guys with that one. Sorry. <laughs> I'm I'm glad you did. Yeah. I'm glad you did. I yeah. mean, wow. Like holy smokes. Like yeah. to go through that kind of thing with your best friend. Yep. And then your family, you know, your ultimately your family and everything. And so I mean, it just like hits right square home that it's not just something, it's not just a job. It's, it's not, not a job. just it's a it's your life. It's life. It's yeah. your life. Yep. You know? What is it like now? just hunting on long island you know as far as like just for somebody let's just say somebody's an adult they move to the boroughs or they move out to long island how would you describe deer hunting or anything we're going to talk about broader hunting opportunities because it's a broader conversation sure but like how do you describe it and like how do you get people what advice would you give it's bow hunting only on long island Mm -hmm. so you got to get a bow there's a there's a january firearm season shotgun shotgun only but bow hunting is is where you know where you're gonna go if you're gonna hunt on Long Island. There's plenty of state land. If you live in Suffolk County, you can hunt on county park land. You get a permit through the county. You get a green key through the county. I believe the green key is three years, and I don't know how much it costs. I know the permit per year is like thirty five dollars, but that gets you access to a large amount of of property for from the county. You can hunt on county public land, which you don't need a permit for. You don't need anything. It's very sparse. You have to do some searching to find it. Yeah. But there's plenty of opportunity if you live in Suffolk County. Nassau County can't hunt on Suffolk County land, but you can hunt on the state property, which there's a good amount of. There's state forest. There's state forest. There's state wetlands. Yeah. Wetlands is all huntable. So there's plenty of opportunity. And where would somebody go? As far as like resources and so stuff like right that. On, right yeah. on a DEC website. Yeah. They, yep. they give out a good, a good amount of information. It takes a little while to figure out how to navigate the DEC website. It's a little confusing at times. But once you get it down and you start figuring out where you can and can't go and, and how the parking situations are, parking situations on Long Island are, you know, you have to park in a specific spot. It's not like upstate where you can park wherever you want. Yeah. So once you get that figured out and figure out where your parking spots are, do your scouting and, and get out there. Yep. And and you would say that like there's resources out there. Like there is a hunting culture on Long Island, right? Yeah, I mean absolutely. You know, you know, for somebody that's like outside of this area, you would think that you would never really catch on that, like unless you just knew it. But like if I, I see it on social media. I can tell you that there is more opportunity to hunt and there's more people that do hunt, whether it's duck hunting, deer hunting, goose hunting. We have a fall turkey season. There's a fall turkey season. Yeah. Yeah. Squirrel hunting. Like, the, the turkeys high during fall turkey season. Yes. Great article in New York Times recently. Can't think of the author's name, but it was a, it was about deer hunting on like Shelter Island. Oh yeah. And so how this got into this is because my friend Katrina Talbot was a charity Roby. Yes. Yes. It was charity Roby, and so she wrote the article. And then, like, there were some references to the, it, it was kind of reflective of, like, women getting mm-hmm. into hunting and that important role in how they connect to themselves and what it means to them and their food. And then, like, tying it back into conservation 
but like it had some references to Katrina Talbot, who runs the bow program. And then what I saw recently was, I think it was, it was public radio. It might be like WHSO or something like that, but it was, it might not be, but it was something like public radio for Long Island in Connecticut. And they just had a conversation about that for like 40 minutes where they invited three or four guests and Katrina was on there as well. And charity was on there as well. It's just really exciting to like, think that those conversations are actually on public radio on Long Island and in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. People would not know that out of this area. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of hunters on Long Island. Yeah. So we're going to get back to that. I'm going to ask Tom a question now. And so Tom, you moved down to New York. Oh, I don't know. Almost 20 years ago now, right? Yeah. 19 years ago. So I moved from the, from the Adirondacks to Queens. Never thought I would live in New York City growing up. Anybody <laughs> that would meet me, I didn't even want to go to New York City. And so what happened, my wife vacationed up there with her family for basically her whole life. And I was at a bar and with my buddies. And anyway, long story short, I met her and we hit it off really well, dated for a little while, long distance. And when it came time to move, she works in television and I was self-employed. So they don't make television in the Adirondacks. So one of us had to move and it ended up being me, but she was worth it. So anyway, long story short, I moved to Queens. November 2001, right after the 9-11 attack. So I drove over the Whitestone Bridge, and there was still smoke coming from ground zero. And everybody back home thought I was crazy about moving, and I was just, like, focused on, hey, this woman's great. I'm moving. I'm changing my life. I want to live with her. So the drive down was cool until I saw ground zero, and then it really hit me. I'm like, oh, my God, what am I doing? Am I ready for this? But I just powered through. So. So I shifted from the Adirondacks to Queens, and so there's a big adjustment there. Like I can sympathize with people like Gary that are trying to get into hunting as an adult because where we grew up, like in the Adirondacks, you go with your family. You know, you're basically born into a hunting family, and there's not a lot of barriers to entry. You tag along with your parents, your family from a young age, and it's easy to get your hunter education course. They had it readily available and you know you wanted to go you, you'd get a gun for christmas mm-hmm. you know so there was no issue with that so when i moved to queens it's part of new york city you have to register your firearms so i did not bring any firearms with me because i didn't want to move to queens and then wind up in jail shortly thereafter so my firearms remain in the adirondacks at my my parents house and so there are many hunting opportunities around like you said so long island's got a lot of public land on it and just north of the city has a lot of public land too yeah but for me it was kind of culture shock being a hunter from a very rural area i didn't want to think about navigating that whole system all i wanted to do was go back home and hunt because that's how how i grew up and Mm -hmm. that's what i know as i've gotten older i drive by some phenomenal hunting to go back to the adirondacks to hunt and every time i drive up there i drive the taconic and i'm looking and saying wow that would be great hunting. Yeah. That looks like great hunting. That looks like great hunting. And I'm sure there are way more deer there, but I drive past it every single time just to go yeah. back to what I know. And same with the Long Island. I know, yeah. like I've seen pictures. There are some phenomenal deer on there Long are. Island. Yeah, but, absolutely. Like it's, it's intimidating for me to think about wading through that process. And it's probably a lot easier than I've made it yeah. out to be in my head as far as like there are certain areas you got to register. 
got to mm-hmm. check in with check stations. There are parking regulations, that sort of thing. And that's so foreign to me. Like Matt was saying earlier, like uh-huh. in the Adirondacks, you can just pull over and hunt wherever. And he's like, okay, can I park here? Whatever. Yeah, and that thought far. never went through our mind. But uh, like to think about that on Long Island, and it's just far enough for me to have to drive. Mm-hmm. Like certain parts, like where Matt is, probably an hour for yeah. me. And yeah. it's just far enough to where it's like, I don't want to drive out there and then wonder if, like, if I find a spot. If the parking spot's going to be full. Yeah, when you get it's going to be full. Yeah. So it goes to my head. I can sympathize with like people who want to get into hunting as an adult. Yeah. Especially in New York City, not only even on Long Island, but just to wade through the whole process, it's hard to get a hunter safety course because they fill up so quickly now. And then to wade through the restrictions to start as far as what you got to do to have a firearm there, because you have to go through the New York Police Department and you have to get fingerprinted and pictures and like it's a whole process. You have to pay a fee and if you don't get it right away. You a lot of times you have to wait. One of the guys we know is on month five now after registering and he still hasn't gotten his permit. Mm-hmm. So Our it's friend not, Ryan. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. happen real quickly. So. I've been hunting my whole life. You know, I've been hunting for like over 30 years. And that's the reason why for me, like I just go back to what I know. But yep. if I grew up in Queens, I don't know that I would even be a hunter because yep. like, it's like, wow, that's a lot to wait through. So anybody that grows up in that environment that wants to get into hunting and does what it takes to get into hunting, I have a lot of respect. Major for credit. Major well, credit. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Gary, like I got a lot mad props. Like, and and a lot of city people get a bad rap. Like if they come up to the, you know, Adirondacks or right. Western New York, or whatever, East oh, End of Long Island. Yeah, the Pumpkin Army's coming. Yep. Like they get a bad rap, but and people don't know. They're trying new things. They yeah. don't know yeah. what these yeah. people go through just to get out and hunt. And they they have a love for the outdoors. They have a love for organic, you know, food that they can provide themselves for their families. And yeah, that's, there's an intentionality with it, mm-hmm. like that I think is different in the sense that. One thing it's developed for me over time, but like when, if you're immersed into it as a young kid, you don't think about it in terms of really thinking through philosophically the ethics and, and what it takes and everything else. You just do it. Cause it's, cause that's what you do and that's what you like. Mm-hmm. And so you've just hunted your whole life. Right. But some people I think never come to that kind of aha moment but others do where it's like wait a minute you know growing up up there i feel like once you hit that intentionality that it's like wow wait a minute this stuff doesn't happen by accident the places that we can hunt you know the opportunities that we have everything that's in place has had a price and it's taken work and everything and so for people coming from areas that you know if you haven't grown up in a hunting family or you're living in an area where the hunting culture is not front and surface it's amazing for what they overcome Absolutely. through the barriers to just get going, you know? And so Gary, like what are your thoughts working through your first hunting season? You know, what's it been like for you personally? Where are you at? What are you trying to work on? And what what are the barriers that you've had to kind of overcome? So the first thing was whether or not, you know, it's, I pulled up to the parking spot and, you know, like you, we were saying, there's only a specific number of hunters that are allowed in any given area and it's based on parking spots and first light i think was 455 or two hours before first light was 455 that's when we're allowed to enter the property we have to get a daily access permit which is pretty easy it's free you fill it out you have it for three years i pull up to my spot and within three or four minutes somebody comes in the spot that's next to me 
And three or four minutes after that, somebody was slowly trying to determine whether or not we were there and they had to drive off. So now I'm sitting there and I'm waiting for about an hour even before I'm allowed to go in. And the whole time it's like I'm about to walk into the woods in pitch darkness with my hunting gear. Like, am I going to be able to get in there quietly, set up, get everything done that I have to do so that I can have potentially a successful hunt? And I think the first barrier was just getting over, you know, I was halfway in and I'm like, yeah, I can do this. Now, the two times that I was able to get out, a little bit of a comedy of errors. For one, I wound up sitting outside like some kind of camping jamboree and they were singing all morning. So that, yeah, so that kind of ruined that. The next time I went in, I found a different path. It was the same area. I found a different path. I was super excited. I got in. It took much less time. I set up and I was confident that I knew that the, the deer were there. I'd seen plenty of sign. There was mass crop set up my hunting blind because i like to hunt from the uh, ground i'm large so i'm worried about gravity taking over and i go in and i have a little seat and i set up my seat and deer do not like the sound of metal just crashing together <laughs> as the seat just completely collapsed under me i smack my back into the blind i knock it off its moorings and i'm standing in the blind like like they're not going to hear me and then i just hear them stamping and snorting at me throughout the woods it starts raining the waterproof blind was no longer waterproof, potentially for me <laughs> scraping against it. So I wound up, you know, packing up and as, you know, as miserable as somebody might say it was, I was just, I was happy to be out there. And every single time I've gone in there, even if there was a failure, it wasn't really a failure because if I took something away from it, it was a success. What was a little upsetting is when I packed everything up and I'm like, I wonder if there is, deer, you know, if the deer is still there and there's three deer just standing there looking at me. And of course they went running off and I was like, all right, well, that's done. But, you know, getting through the first season and knowing that it's something I can do, it kind of helps you refocus. And this year I've gone back into it. I've put in quite a bit more time scouting and the things that I need to see show up much easier on my radar. Like I've always had a good game eye since I was a kid because I was always in the outdoors especially when I was younger, but you don't necessarily notice a scrape. You don't notice a rub. You don't notice droppings the way that I do now. So now as soon as, you know, you see that stuff, I'm picking up a lot more of it. I'm sure I'm missing stuff still, but so it's been, it's been really fun. The process of learning has been a lot of fun in getting through that, but you know, it's a lot to go through and it's a lot to process the information that you're, you're taking in, but I've enjoyed it so far, you know, luckily I can laugh at myself. Yeah. That's great stuff. You know, it's great stuff. And yeah, what I think is cool, like what Gary is doing, a lot of people will go with a mentor, which is cool because that cuts the learning curve mm -hmm. a lot. You learn a lot more quickly, but there's something to be said about doing it on your own. Getting out there like your rate of success, like will take it, it goes down, but it'll, zero. it'll take yeah. a lot longer for you to have su success, but you learn more like when you do it on your own. You don't just learn it as quickly, but I think you learn it more deeply. I don't yeah. even know like more how detailed. to describe it, but yeah. yeah. So I'm not like, I think it's cool that you're trying to do it on your own, but I also, you know, there's, I'm not trying to take away from like hunting with a mentor either, but yeah. cause there's something to be said for that also. Like I still, like I've been hunting for years and like our buddy is our mentor, like our hunting partner. Totally. Yep. He's still my mentor. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been hunting my entire life, but I still learn something every time I hunt with this guy. Mm. Like I never stop learning. And I... I use him now because I don't have the time to scout like I used to. So he's my eyes and ears in the woods when I can't be there. So I don't know. I guess my point is yeah. it's cool to be able to do stuff on your own, but it's also cool to have a mentor. But So I was talking like, I'm just going to say this really briefly. I was talking earlier today with Gus Kanjemi. We're at the show. 
Gus Kanjemi has lived the wildlife TV. He's going on the Sportsman's Channel, I think it is. The guy's hunted all over North America. Like, he's a, a media dude. He's spent, like, 40 days in Alaska in the wilderness. I mean, mm. he, he, has, he has been a hardcore hunter. And he has a mentor in Pat Salerno in the Adirondacks. Yeah. Like, there is something that drives that guy to want to go to the Adirondacks in one of the toughest places in North America to hunt deer. And even Gus Kanjemi has a mentor. He has mm-hmm. a mentor named Pat Salerno who is helping him, like, working through that process and stuff, you know? So there's a lot to be said for all that. And so to just, like, I think it's amazing, like, that, like to just, like, do it and just figure it out and just, just get out there and work through it. It's, it's great stuff, Gary. Thank you. I mean, I did initially have a mentor. So last winter when I started scouting, I was scouting with someone. We actually had a disagreement over fishing spots. I wound up getting permission from him to go to a location to go fishing. And I went. I didn't bring anyone with me. I didn't post any of the pictures. But he wound up being upset that I went. And so that disagreement kind of unfortunately wound up disintegrating the friendship a little bit. So I did start with a mentor. And he did initially show me this is a scrape. This is a rub. These are the things to look for. Yep. But I only went, you know, when we had a few conversations, but that pretty much ended in, in May. So everything that I did after that, which is when I did most of the scouting for my locations, that was pretty much, I was doing it on my own. And now when I go in, like I'll call up a friend. And so I have a friend, he actually does have some private land upstate. He wants me to go hunting with him. And I told him that, you know, I would do that, but I want him to come with, you know, so I can take him out to some public land on the island. So he's actually, I've been out with him once. I've been reconnected with a buddy from high school that he was a couple of years younger than me, but we both played football. So we literally just went two weeks ago and we reconnected. I haven't seen him since high school. And we just, we walked around. Uh, it was only like two miles. It wasn't a particularly big area, but we just spent a couple hours in the woods walking around and looking for signs. So I mean, there's a little bit of a mentorship there still because they have more experience than I do. But there is there is quite a bit that I'm doing on my own. But there is also quite a bit with you know various mentors. Yeah, very cool stuff. And like so, that kind of segues into the next question that I had is as far as like what resources have you tapped into working through all of this stuff? So truthfully, it's it's been a lot of podcasts, mm-hmm. been a lot of shows, Mediator, Mediator podcast, East to West hunting is something that I listen to quite a bit. Bomar Tonics podcast I listened to started watching a lot of even though it's it's different type of hunting I've been watching a lot of like how blood on YouTube so it's a there is social media there is the internet I'm going to there are some people that there are some people that are very willing to talk and provide information like I've had a few conversations with Matt you know about different things and he was able to give me some general stuff and point me in the right direction so if there's somebody that's willing to provide information I'm more than more than happy to take it from them with social media sometimes I take some things with a grain of salt. You kind of have to try to, to sift through some of this stuff to see, you know, what's legitimate information and what's bravado or, you know, whatever other adjective you might want to use for it. But that's still where I'm getting, I'm, I'm, I'm still getting quite a bit of information from there. Yeah. The podcasting stuff and just yeah. Yeah, listening. Oh, and no, I'm sorry. Also actually bow hunter magazine, bow hunter magazine and our magazine, the American hunter. So I am getting quite a bit from magazines as well. Very cool. Very cool. Matt, I want to ask you a question. Like, so We've been kind of talking about very specifically about deer hunting kind of so far, but one of the 
goals of this episode also is to just kind of shed the light. If you're a generalist, somebody that just likes to connect to the outdoors, yeah. it could be fishing. It could be any kind of hunting, like as far as waterfowl, birds, deer, or any kind of other outdoor pursuits. Like it could be foraging or whatnot, like any, mm-hmm. just getting outside. How would you describe the outdoor opportunities, like where you live like in general? Like what's a, what are the options for? There's people? a lot of options. A lot of options. So you got your deer hunting. You got small game. There's squirrels everywhere. You want to go chase some squirrels? Come to Long Island. There's squirrels everywhere. They stock pheasants. November 1st, you can start hunting small game. You can chase pheasants on state property. They stock them. I've hunted them. There's a good amount of birds out there. There's woodcocks. There's duck hunting opportunities. There's outfitters on Long Island. There's plenty of outfitters on Long Island. You don't even need an outfitter. You you could just go hide in the weeds. I've done it plenty of times. You know, everybody's a good duck hunter the first half hour before sunlight, yeah. right? Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll live up to that one. There's plenty of opportunity. There's freshwater fishing. There's saltwater fishing, probably some of the best on the East Coast, I'd say. Like <laughs> that, This is what piques my interest. I read New York Outdoor News a lot. Yeah. And so the place I always gravitate to first in that newspaper is the fishing updates yeah. like and then you look at like montauk and like mm-hmm. the, you, the what do they call it the like the bite or the way. new york bite yeah. yeah and like there's all these updates on what's going on yep. and are different yeah. what the stripers are doing and for somebody like me that's never had exposure to that i'm absolutely fascinated by it like i i'm just like oh uh, you could dive so deep i mean there's the guys on the boats there's the guys that are surf casting you could go deep into it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I try to do a little fishing out of Montauk every year. You know, it, we're always pretty successful. There's freshwater fish on Long Island. A lot of it. Yeah. Gary, talk a little bit about that. There's actually a surprising amount of freshwater fishing yeah. opportunities. If you go to the DEC website, you know, it, it really is a great resource. And there, I think it's under recreation and then there's freshwater fishing. And then you click the link for places to fish and it breaks it down by region. And I think one of the specific links is places to fish on Long Island mm-hmm. and New York City. And it breaks down fishing in the city. So that's Manhattan, Queens, you know, any of the boroughs, it breaks it down. And then you have Nassau County and then it breaks it down into eastern and western Suffolk. I mean, if you're looking to get started and get into fishing, you're probably within 15 minutes of a body of water that has panfish you know most of them have panfish there's carp on the island there's quite a bit of stocking for trout on the island so there's a lot of opportunity for trout especially early in the year there is some bass fishing on the island um, and every once in a while you'll see guys catching a pretty big bass the, the the density of fish for in terms of bass is not you know it's not it's not massive but there's definitely a bass fishing culture on the island so yeah there's there's definitely a lot of opportunity also there's a lot of pickerel believe it or not there's I've a lot of really a f- good pick- a there's a re- couple of really good pickerel fishing places they stock walleye in certain bodies of water so really? yes, there's a lot of opportunity yep mm-hmm. yeah you know i do a lot of social media stuff too and i'm on twitter and stuff and i follow one of the things i'm fascinated by on twitter is this community i think it's called like million or billion oyster like there's like this oyster restoration kind of yep. stuff going yeah, in on the oyster bay yeah on the north shore yeah our friend John, Helen's partner, John, I think is interested in oysters, right? What's his handle? NYC Fishburger. Fishburger. <laughs> so our friend Helen, her partner, John, anytime I've ever seen him, like he is on the spot. I, I had the opportunity to speak with him. We did 
the venison backyard barbecue in Brooklyn last year through yeah. Odd Carn and New York BHA. And John was there and he was talking about just like all that stuff, oysters and fishing and yeah, yeah, it could be a rabbit hole to oh, go yeah. down. Very cool. And so Matt or Gary, you can both weigh in on this. If somebody were to move to New York for work and, or if they just were here and they hadn't been doing outdoor stuff and they are just like, Hey, I want to get started in this whole hunting and fishing culture and lifestyle. What would you say would be the most logical gateway? Just jump into that small game right there, you know? Yeah. Like, squirrel hunting. Yeah, squirrel hunting. Yeah. You know? If yep. you're on Long Island, if you're in New York City, me personally, I would go right for, for a bow. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just so you don't have to jump through hoops with a gun right away. Yeah. You know? Yep. I know I know guns, sometimes people are nervous around guns at first, you know? Yeah. Yeah, they have to have conversations with their families. They have to have conversations yeah. with their neighbors. Yep. You know, guns can be... There's a lot to unpack with that. That's a big conversation. And just like in having the conversation about harvesting animals is also a big conversation. Yep. You know, there's, those are things if you're not for, with a family or like with your neighbors who are normal to that, that, that you just have to have those conversations and mm -hmm. there's a lot to it. What's your thoughts? Anything you want to add to like what we've talked about so far? Uh, I don't know. You, you good? Yeah, I think so. Well, I was going to say, I mean, similar to small game hunting, there's, I mean, one of the best ways to get somebody in fishing in general, not just on the island, is take somebody to a pond that's full of bluegill, mm -hmm. you know, and there's plenty of opportunity for that. With each of my kids, I purchased, it was like a, it was like a $15 rod and reel combo, a Zebco Doc Demon, just get a couple of small hooks with a float and put a wax worm or a piece of earthworm on there and your kid will be entertained, for, you know, for hours as long yeah. as, you know, as soon as, if you're trying to get a child started, as soon as they get kind of distracted or bored like go with the distraction yeah. take a nature walk go to a playground you don't want to push it on them but as an adult if you're looking to try to get into it i mean there's absolutely nothing wrong with starting oh, out yeah. on on bluegill yeah i, I thought I, of something yeah go ahead one thing that people should do if they move to the city or if they've lived in the city their whole life they want to get into hunting or fishing they should join a group like bha yeah. you know, that should be the first thing they do because yeah. that's a great place to network with people that actually do it mm -hmm. yeah and they can really help you work through that whole process as far as what you need to do in order to get started get going with your hunter safety and all that so i think that would be like from my opinion that would be the first step that i would yeah. tell somebody like, because you don't have to be a hunter or a fisherman to join you don't oh. have to yeah. just join up a, a, and it doesn't have to be bha although bha is a great group for that because everybody i've encountered with BHA is so down to earth. They're so willing to help. There's a lot of openness. Absolutely. Yeah. Everybody's really and, cool. And, and they're, they're a great resource, like to just run ideas off of and ask questions to. And mm -hmm. I've learned a lot, you know, I've hunted my whole life, but I still learn stuff. And from BHA people and people in New York city, BHA who haven't even hunted like very long at all. I learned stuff from them. Mm -hmm. Like, so like, don't be intimidated mm -hmm. with joining a group of people that are, already yeah hunters everybody's in, has varying levels of experience that's it but join a group like that that's what i would say the, the first thing you should do get in your yeah. lane find the right people right yep. yeah there's and 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 so there's bha there's trout unlimited there's a whole bunch of other groups there's resources like just from being in the city like coming down for events there's resources like the metropolitan rod and gun club over in brooklyn we did a podcast for modern carnivore at that place our friend matt rogers took us in gave us a tour that's a pretty cool place 
they're you know they have archery shooting and and they have a range and they have property up in the Catskills. So the Metropolitan Rotten Gun Club has a long history. There's Gotham Archery, which is also like a range over that way, right? Proline in Queens. Yeah, Proline. Yep. Urban Angler is a pretty good resource as far as like getting started, you know, for people that want to start fishing. Like they're a company, they sell stuff, but they're, you know, they're involved with the fly fishing film tour like that, that was in yep. March here in New York. So they've got some good stuff coming up. So I think that there's just, there's a lot of resources, I think, right? I think something, you don't have to buy a lot of stuff. Yeah. You can get a fishing pole, you know. Yeah. You can get one that's set up. It's got hooks. Yeah. And, and the same goes for hunting. You don't need the biggest, best gear. No, you don't need much. You don't yeah. need camo. Yeah, Gary, you, you don't mentioned need all that stuff mm-hmm. about like finding resources to get hunting gear. Like, yeah, I mean, it was it was actually um, I don't remember the name of the episode, but it was the East to West Hunting Podcast where you talked about getting started. What was it for less than three hundred dollars? Yeah, but there was just a lot of resources that that came out from that podcast, and I think you brought it to the community on Facebook, and people were chiming in. And that's where I got most of my stuff, from, you know, from backcountry.com, steep and cheap, yep. Sierra Trading Post. There was a lot of different, you know, there was a lot of different things that I was able to get that I was genuinely concerned that I was not going to have access to. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff out there. And, you know, this is kind of funny. You know, I went out to Wyoming this year to hunt pronghorn on a do-it-yourself public land hunt. And the, the shirt that I was wearing, I bought off of eBay for about 15 bucks. It was like, a, <laughs> there you go. it was an old woodland camo shirt, but I just loved it. And I was wearing, you know, gray pants and that was just stuff that that whole outfit cost me, you know, maybe 40 bucks. Mm-hmm. But the point is, is that you can do it in that. You like, can do it in the, jeans and a t-shirt. The main <laughs> thing is just to get started, you know, yeah. be safe about it. Don't, yeah. you know, don't take risks. But you can, you can just, the big thing is just to get out there and start doing stuff. You know, I, I am really excited about like, so growing up in the North country in the Adirondacks, I didn't have access to like all the saltwater fishing. Mm-hmm. My family never traveled down here to do any of that. So we just were always local. Like we're just, we, we had a lot of stuff right in our backyard. I mean, we were catching brook trout and fishing for pike and ice fishing and all that. But I'm really really trying to learn how to fish for striped bass a little better than I am. And I have a long, long way to go. Like we're all new at something yep. and I am very new at striped bass fishing. And I, I really admire people that really know what they're doing with striped bass. But I'm also like just really intrigued with just fishing off of jetties and piers and stuff like that <laughs> yeah. for whatever you can catch, That's whether it. they're porgies or what do they call Schooly it? Schoolie bass. Yeah. Uh, you yeah, got scup. Uh, I don't know. I think porgies and scup are the same. Bluefish. Everyone yeah. hates the yellow-eyed demon, but yeah. they are an absolute blast. Like, it's so funny. You'll run into people and be like, oh, it's all bluefish out there. It's like, okay, great. Yeah. You you go that way. I'll find I'll go find them. And yeah. they put up a great fight. They're a good time to catch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if when they're biting, you you can catch one on every cast. Yep. When they're when they're in a frenzy, they're, they're aggressive, right? Yeah. Super aggressive. They mm-hmm. super fast, super strong fish. Yeah, yeah it's it's and, a lot of fun to go. And for. they're they're there in numbers. When yeah. they're there, large numbers. Yeah, yeah. So and and we haven't even talked about waterfowl hunting that much. Yep. And maybe that's just a different episode. Yep. Like just talking about Long Island waterfowl hunting. It's a major, long, old culture. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, and then, you know, I mean, there's just so much opportunity for that. Mm. And even up North, you know, so we were just deer hunters, but I had the opportunity recently. My friend lives on Lake Champlain 
which is a major flyway for geese yeah. and ducks. And so he invited me, little did I know that the snow goose season is still open up on Lake Champlain through early March. Wow. And so there's hunting opportunities for snow geese that are, you know, really cool hunting opportunities that I had no idea about. And so he, I may be able to hook up with that and like help him one day. And that help might just be like setting out decoys or doing whatever we're doing, but just getting exposure to something new is pretty cool. And the fact that like I've lived there my whole life and had no idea that, that you could hunt snow geese on Lake Champlain, no idea that you could catch salmon in the tribs of Lake Champlain in the spring on streamers. So yeah, yeah. you guys coming up frog gigging this year? Uh, Yeah, man. I'm in. Frog is going to try it on Long Island. Maybe you guys can answer something for me. Why is it that so many people I see that, that hunt goose make pastrami? There's a lot of (laughs) goose pastrami and Uh, I I just, I mean, I've never had it, so I don't know. Probably two words. Hank Shaw. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? I have no idea. Yeah, like, know. I guess I'm just seeing it on social media. It's mm-hmm. recent, but it's like every time, you know, you look at social media, somebody's like, just made some goose pastrami. And I'm like, oh, I mean, it looks good. Yeah. I'm just think it's very, it's, I would not think of a bird as the first thing to do pastrami, to, to do pastrami with, but yeah, it must I'm, be I'm good. thinking about, so I'm thinking I've got some pronghorn. And uh, I'm thinking about corning some for St. Patrick's Day this year. Nice. And maybe making some pastrami out of that. I don't know what it is. Like, that's a good question. But I think, like, I think at some point. Yeah, it could be. And I'm pretty sure that Hank Shaw had some, like, goose pastrami recipe. I mean, Hank Shaw is pretty amazing. Yeah, he, he does a lot of great stuff. And so, like, I think that he's such an influencer that, like, if he came out with, like, a goose you know pastrami and that could be where because i'm actually yeah. in in the facebook group what is it hunt gather cook or could gather cook yeah, yeah. And, and that could be where i'm seeing a lot of it but it's just i feel like within the last couple of weeks i'm just constantly seeing people making goose pastrami and I'm, i've wondered why pretty cool i've always wanted to make this is not easy to do there's an kind of an art to it but like uh, i like prosciutto mm. like the italian ham prosciutto yeah. and i've always had the itch to make some kind of like venison prosciutto. Yeah. Like, and I don't hear people talking about that. that I'll much. help you test it. Okay. <laughs> so we'll, we'll be up for that next yeah, year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Good. What else do we have to talk about here? Thoughts from the show. Thoughts from the show. I think the show's going great. Yeah. We're yeah. at the suffering show, Gary. Yeah. I mean, it's been pretty great. You know, I've been coming up here with my dad since the eighties and, you know, I've uh, I always kind of walked around wondering what it would be like to be on the other side of the booth, you know, on one of the other sides. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm glad that I have the opportunity. There's a lot of energy, a lot of great conversation, some funny stories, you know, with people coming by. So it's, yeah, it's been great. I'm looking forward to getting a little bit more time in the booth tomorrow and meeting some more people. Very good, Tom. I'm glad Gary's looking forward to getting more booth time. You <laughs> had, yeah. I'm getting tired out. I've been in the booth uh, for three for days. days in a row. So yeah. Yeah, but it's cool. You meet a lot of cool people. Especially the ones that are aware of BHA. It's amazing yeah. how many people are not aware of BHA. Yeah. And it's kind of sad in a way. Yeah. Because they don't even know like what BHA stands for. They don't know what we do. And then what's the most sad to me is the people that hear. We, we explain to them what we do, what we stand for, and they keep walking. Yep. Yeah. And My- I, it's, I don't know, it's discouraging to me. And I noticed a lot of older people have no interest in BHA. And it's like, you know what? You've taken advantage of the system that we have in place and the public lands and you take it for granted. Yeah. That, like, that's what it tells me when they walk away, 
Like, eh. Yeah. They take it. They took it for granted, and it's like you know what? We don't care about future generations being able to like do what we did. Like, yeah. they don't see the risk in that, or they don't care. And that's a little disheartening. But I do enjoy like the younger people. They seem more excited about it. Yeah, which is cool. And then just yeah. meeting like people that are into BHA in general are just cool. Yeah, yeah. People. They and they hang out at the booth a bit and have conversations. Yeah, yeah. That's my cool. my favorite quote of the show was from our friend Paul Stewart tonight like, when we were talking about his trip. Yeah, to he's Maine. a good dude. Yeah, and uh, like when he told the difference between partridge and yes. grouse, <laughs> and what he said was that if it's on the ground, it's partridge. Yeah. If it's flying, it's, it's grouse. You no, know, <laughs> what he said was if it's on the ground, it's, it's, it's a partridge. It's partridge without an R. It's the main accent, right? Yeah. yeah. All right, so this has been a fun conversation. Yeah. I appreciate everything. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to sharing this with the community. Can I share my favorite quote from, the, from today? Please do. Where is backcountry? Yeah. <laughs> they specifically wanted to know where backcountry is and whether or not it was in New York or New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> more, than, more than once. It's uh, like, I would say it's like wherever you want it to be. Yep. And you know? needless to say, we didn't sign those people no. up. Yeah, they know. <laughs> All right, we're signing off with the Outdoor Feast podcast. Stay tuned. Follow us on social media. Please go over and also subscribe, if you haven't, to the Modern Carnivore podcast by my good friend, Mark Norquist. They're having good conversations in the Midwest, and they're doing amazing work. And appreciate you listening, and we'll be back pretty soon. Thanks, guys. See you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Outdoor Feast podcast. You can check out our other podcast and more at modcarn.com.